Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I'm uh, going to start my paper. I just want to set this uh, by saying that I'm uh, outside of my realm. I'm not a political philosopher. Uh, and I got the chance to meet Marcello Pera once, who was the president of the Italian Senate, uh, and hear his idea. And then I found out Cardinal Ratzinger wrote a book with him, a couple books, on this idea. And I started using that book. And I noticed Habermas has a similar view to Para. So I have a sort of a narrow point to make. However, it dovetails, you'll see, with, with your paper. Um, OK. <clears throat> there are two kinds of atheists out there now. One, the atheists who think religion is the cause of all evil in the world and who strive to eradicate it in order to bring about their version of utopia. And two, the atheists who perceive that the world is going terribly off track and wonder whether religion, after all, does have something to offer with respect to how we structure our common life together. <clears throat> this paper is about the conversation happening between that second type of atheist and people of faith. Recently, Josef Ratzinger has collaborated on book projects with Jürgen Habermas, an atheist, and Marcello Pera, an agnostic, on questions pertaining to the foundations of morality and the common good. Habermas, who once held a Rawlsian view with respect to religious voices in the public sphere, has changed his position, stating, quote, the liberal state has an interest in its own of unleashing religious voices in the public sphere, for it cannot know whether secular society would not otherwise cut itself off from key resources for the creation of meaning and identity, end quote. Marcello Pera has expressed a very similar position to be discussed below. This new openness of some high-profile atheists and agnostics to religious voices in the public sphere, combined with the West's rejection of its moral heritage and historical roots, has led Josef Ratzinger to the following suggestion, quote, in the age of the Enlightenment, the attempt was made to understand and define the essential norms of morality by saying that these would be valid etsi deus non daretur, even if God did not exist. We must reverse the axiom of the Enlightenment and say, even one who does not succeed in finding the path to accepting the existence of God ought nevertheless to try and live and direct his life valutisi deus daretur, as if God did indeed exist. End Ratzinger. That etsi deus non daretur can be explained as follows. Immanuel Kant in his time was deeply concerned about the loss of morality that would ensue from his position on the unknowability of God's existence, free will, and the immortality of the soul. Thus, Kant decided to accept as postulates of practical reason God's existence, free will, and the immortality of the soul in order that morality would not fall apart, which he thought would inevitably happen if people actually rejected God, free will, and immortality when they build their ethics. Marcello Pera expresses this by saying that Kant and also Galileo were trying to keep what is and can be verified scientifically, together with what ought to be, which is based on customs, faith, and belief. Kant and Galileo wanted to promote traditional morality even if God did not exist or could not be known. Para concludes, quote, the solution thought out by Kant did not succeed because once it had taken hold, the logic of separation of science and morality and faith was more powerful than the logic of unification. 
Ratzinger remarks that the separation which ensued indicates that our moral strength has not grown in tandem with the developments of science. On the contrary, it has diminished. And this results in the growing influence, Ratzinger says, that power and profit inflict on us. Ratzinger's approach is reminiscent of a line from John Paul's first encyclical, Redemptor Hominis, in which he says, the man of today lives increasingly in fear. He is afraid that what he produces can radically turn against himself. He is afraid that it can become the means and instrument for an unimaginable self-destruction, compared with which all cataclysms and catastrophes of history seem to fade away." End quote. That quotation leads one immediately to think of nuclear weapons. It can also recall the devastation inflicted by mankind on mankind by the totalitarian regimes of Europe in the last century. And it applies equally to developments in biomedical technology. And we could even say, I think, to capitalism as it's currently practiced. With respect to these threats in biotechnology, which have resulted from the exaltation of science divorced from morality and religion, Ratzinger stated to Habermas, which is why he says nature and God, in this quote, man is now capable of making human beings, of producing them in test tubes. Man becomes a product, and this entails a total alteration of man's relation to his own self. He is no longer a gift of nature or the creator. He is his own product. Man has descended into the very wellsprings of power to the sources of his own existence. The temptation to construct the right man at long last, the temptation to experiment with human beings, the temptation to see them as rubbish, to be discarded. All this is no mere fantasy of moralists opposed to progress." End quote. It's actually happening. Motivated by these extreme fruits of the separation of science and reason from religion and morality, Ratzinger suggests reversing the axiom of the Enlightenment, asking that people of our day consider living as if God exists, even though they do not believe in him. Why is this a reversal of the axiom? What is the meaning of the shift from living according to traditional morality, even if there is no God, to the idea of living life in such a way that you imagine God exists and then live according to that? Is there even a difference between those two? There is a difference, and it is noted in a change in the cultural backdrop from the 18th to the 21st century. It fits with something what, what you said. Um, the reason why it was possible for the people of the 18th century to agree on the basics, if you will, was because, Ratzinger says, the great fundamental convictions created by Christianity were largely resistant to attack and seemed undeniable. But, he continues, that is no longer the case. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor wrote a major work, which won the Templeton Prize, called A Secular Age. If I understand Taylor correctly, he does not mean by secular age that everyone in our day is living debauched lives. Whether that is the case or not, his definition of a secular age is something different. He means that in times past, there was a cultural backdrop against which everyone in the society made decisions. That backdrop in the West was Christianity, and so if a European left her faith, she knew exactly what she was departing from. This does not mean that there was a golden age when everyone was living virtuous lives. It just refers to that Christian backdrop of society, which sort of imbued European life and culture with a specific ethos of which everyone was aware. Taylor means that our age is secular because that backdrop is no longer. Christianity is just one option among a number of other options which one may select equally as one's life's philosophy. 
If you talk to young people today, for example, high school students who did not grow up going to church and, and watch the popular TV shows, you immediately realize that they do not have a foundational knowledge of Christianity and that Taylor is right. Whereas if you talk to an older person who left their faith, you have something in common. They reject it, but you both, un you both understand what they are rejecting. There's no need to do the foundational catechetical, catechetical work for the common ground basis of a conversation about accepting or rejecting church teaching. So the people of the 18th century, they had sort of a co-natural knowledge of traditional morality because for centuries the cultural backdrop that colored their world was Judeo-Christian or Greco-Judeo-Christian. Kant was able to suggest the postulates of practical reason because he lived in that setting. Now this, to quote Ratzinger, reassuring certainty of something that could go unchallenged is not part of the cultural mindset of contemporary Europeans or Americans. So Ratzinger's meaning of re reversing the axiom becomes clear. He's asking people of today to consider living according, a set of, according to a set of principles with which they are unfamiliar, but which offer relief from the malaise engulfing them. People in the 18th century, on the other hand, seeing the multiplication of Christian denominations and doubting God, they didn't want to lose those basics of morality that they all agreed upon. Para, Marcello Para responded that Ratzinger's proposal should be accepted should be accepted. And Habermas holds this view. Here's another one of Habermas's quotes from his Holberg lecture. He says, the force of religious traditions to articulate moral intuitions with regard to social forms of a dignified life, human life, makes religious presentations on relevant political issues a serious candidate for possible truth claims. And by the way, John Rawls himself adjusted his view in this direction also in his well-known article, The Idea of Public Reason Revisited, when he, this is Rawls, quote, reasonable comprehensive doctrines, religious or non-religious, may be introduced in public discussion at any time, provided that in due course proper political reasons, and not reasons given solely by comprehensive doctrines, are presented that are sufficient to support whatever the comprehensive doctrines are said to support." End quote. It must be pointed out, though, that Rawls did not go as far as Habermas. Habermas claimed that this demand to translate represents an unfair asymmetrical burden required of religious citizens but not of secular citizens. While Habermas does hold the view that if religious sources are, imply, are employed when enacting legislation, then translation would be needed in crafting actual laws, he nonetheless calls for what he, what he calls a balanced distribution of cognitive burdens. When he asks, Habermas asks secular citizens to give up their presupposition that religious traditions are nothing more than archaic relics of pre-modern societies and to respect them as equal voices, even when they present their arguments in religious terms. Habermas holds that view now. <clears throat> and he thinks society can learn from it. At this point, a question emerges about the difference between Habermas and Para on the one hand and Ratzinger on the other. It is all well and good that some big name atheists and agnostics are now welcoming people of faith back to the public discussion. How nice of them. But what of this idea and you, you sort of asked this question, what of this idea of building a society on the scaffolding of Catholic social and moral teaching without anyone in that society actually believing the faith? Could that work? It seems to me that Para thinks this is not only possible but necessary to save Western society. 
In what sense does Ratzinger's view accept this notion, and in what sense does it not? In order to grasp that, we must understand what Ratzinger means by faith. First, note that faith is often used in two senses. One, by faith we mean the teachings of the church. This can mean matters of revelation, but also the precise moral indications given by the church. And then the second meaning of faith, we mean the lived relationship between a person and God, which includes also prayer and participation in the sacraments. So the distinction between the teachings of the faith and a living faith is what I mean. Now, in recent public discussions, I have noticed, and you probably all have too, that those who disagree with Catholic positions have a premise in their arguments that faith is by nature irrational. As far as I can discern, they mean that both aspects of faith listed above are irrational. For example, if the Catholic faith teaches that marriage is between one man and one woman, or that contraception is immoral, these are said to be irrational in the sense that they violate equality or choice, which are considered rational. With respect to the second meaning of faith, living faith, that is said to be irrational in the sense that those who say they have a relationship with God are imagining it or producing it because of some psychological disturbance or they're afraid of death or some such thing. In discourse in the public sphere on matters of public policy, one task that Catholics are called to is to show the reasonableness of our teachings and their ability to contribute to the common good. This is very important to do. And people like Habermas and Para and others are now open to listening. But those people see no need for or connection to faith in the second sense, a living faith. I think Para believes that you can build a society on the scaffolding of Christian and social moral principles, even if no one in that society has faith. He thinks it's necessary, actually. Ratzinger sees an important connection between the teachings, being in society, and a live faith. But the connection that Ratzinger sees is not that all non-believers must believe before the common good can be achieved uh, based on true morality. So in order to understand the precise nature of the connection that Ratzinger is gonna suggest, we have to say what he means by faith in this second sense, live, living faith. He begins by making a distinction between natural faith and supernatural faith. He then says, that what they have in common is the same three-step structure. Knowledge, trust, verification. Where they differ is in step one, knowledge. Examples given by Ratzinger of natural faith are electricity and pharmacy. There are some people who know how to harness and direct electricity, and there are also some people who know how to create drugs that can cure our various ailments. Most of the rest of us do not know how to do those things, and so we trust the small number of people who do. This trust in their knowledge is an act of natural faith. There are two reasons why this natural faith is not irrational. First, we can verify it by flicking on a light switch or taking the medicine. And secondly, the knowledge is obtainable by anyone who has the gumption to learn it. Just go get a degree in electrical engineering or pharmacy science. Compared to the entire population, though, only a few people gain that knowledge base. And there are many more examples of this. And so Ratzinger says, we live within a network of unknown quantities. There's a small number of people in whom a large number of people have a natural faith. And this is not irrational for the two reasons just given. 
Okay, now what does Ratzinger mean by supernatural faith? It has the same three-step process, knowledge, trust, verification. But the source of knowledge is different in kind than the source of knowledge in natural faith. Rather than learning about a field of study, the knowledge which is at the basis of supernatural faith comes from meeting a person. To take an example from scripture, the Samaritan woman goes to the well at midday when no one else will be there and she expects no one to be there, but someone is there. A conversation ensues between her and Jesus. You all know the content of the conversation, but the subplot is simple. Jesus says, I am God. And she says, really? And he says, really, I am. Let me tell you about you. She drops everything then, goes back to the town and says to everyone, you're not going to believe this, but I was just talking to God right over there. They notice something about her, something different, and likely combined with the fact that it is precisely this woman they believe her. That is an act of faith. Then they set out for step three, verification, after which they say to the poor woman, we don't need you anymore. We met him ourselves now and believe. Ratzinger holds that with supernatural faith also, a large number of people gain living faith through a small number of people who have met God. How do we do that? In meeting a saint or a prophet, Ratzinger's definition of a prophet is not a seer of the future, but one who has met God and who has the task of sharing him with others. In meeting such a person, we acquire a living faith. The woman at the well, in this sense, is just like Moses when he comes down from the mountain, his face beaming with light. This lived faith mysteriously opens one's eyes to the dignity of persons and makes you look at others with a look of love, which he also discusses in this book with Para. This changes all of your behavior in a foundational way. Basically, you begin to live according to traditional Christian morality because you can see it properly now. This then is noticed by others and they are drawn to you and to it. On the assumption accepted by some high profile atheist and agnostic thinkers that Catholic and social moral teaching does have well-reasoned common sense principles to offer in the public sphere, principles they seem at times to be granting now are the best source of bringing about the common good, is it possible to employ those principles even if no one in the society has a living faith? Marcello Pera thinks the answer is yes and is calling for Europeans to do this before Europe is no longer. Josef Ratzinger's answer is yes, but. Ratzinger thinks that the teachings are accessible to reason and therefore, like Pera, makes a plea for people to live as if God exists. Put simply, I take Ratzinger to mean something along these lines. Before it is too late, please try living according to the principles of Catholic social and moral teaching because it really is good for you and society and if you try it, you will see. That's what Ratzinger is saying. However, unlike Pera, Ratzinger thinks that unless there is a critical mass of citizens who have a deep faith, prayer life, sacramental life, and live a fulfilled life according to the teachings, unless there's a critical mass of such people, Para's proposal will fail. <clears throat> An interesting question on the theme of this conference emerges here. 
Is there a distinction between an implicit and an explicit foundation of morality on God? Let me explain that idea by asking three questions. One, what is the role of Christian witness with respect to the knowledge of morality in the minds of non-believers? Two, what is the role of Christian witness in the formation of public policy when collaborating with non-believers, of Christian witness, not just Christian teaching? And three, is there a sense in which knowledge of Christian morality or even just knowledge of the natural law can only be known by the wider public if a critical mass of people actually live a fulfilled life according to it because they understand it. It is certainly true that we cannot live according to traditional morality on our own. We can barely do it and often fail, even with the help of grace. But that desire to try, to really try to live according to it, seems to come from meeting a saint or meeting God and the the effect that has in your soul. And when non-believers encounter all of this in someone or in a large group of people, it can have two effects. It can open them to the possibility of living differently, even if they do not believe in God or it can open them to a living faith. I think Ratzinger is saying that for true morality to even be known by the wider public, there is an epistemological sine qua non, namely men and women who make God credible by their lives and by their happiness. The knowledge of morality for non-believers is rooted not in their faith in God, because they do not have that, but in seeing the lives of faithful Christians. This is an implicit or indirect source of real knowledge, real moral knowledge. I think Ratzinger holds that Christian witness can perform those two distinct roles, introduce people to new ways of living or bring them to a living faith. And in his book projects with Habermas and Para, Ratzinger is focusing only on the first of these. He's respecting their lack of faith in God. And he is agreeing with their idea that Christian principles have something to offer in the public sphere. And he is also tapping into their awareness that the West is unraveling as the motive for their willingness to take a second look at religion. But Ratzinger is then calling on Christians to realize that if they want to reach the level even of convincing open-minded non-believers of basic social and moral principles, they have to be witnesses or it won't work. And uh, the only way they can be witnesses is to rely on on God and and grace in the midst of their trying uh, to be good. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. 